0: we begin to look into god's word i'd like to say two things one let's continue to keep jerry and don in their prayers they are this morning on vacation and enjoying some vacation time should be back early this week and we miss them dearly look forward to them being back with us next week by the way mentioning something about being back with us my wife is back today Stand up, baby. Stand up. She's got this great shirt that says, and the beat goes on. And she's starting to get the beat, the rhythm, back into the house again, and things are starting to look better at her house, and the meals are better now. that I'm not throwing bologna on lettuce wraps. We don't do it on bread anymore. But it sure is good. And you're trying to hail me with what? Pam is correcting me and wants me to let you know that the meals that you brought us were great. And we did. Man, they were so, so very wonderful. Thank you very much. You know, this church is so good at serving others, especially when we're in a hard place. And um, we are. We're good at that. Somebody just reminded me of that during the five-minute break. Thank you for how that you have served Pam and I. Would you turn this morning in your Bibles with me to Psalm 139? For a long, long time, I have wanted to do a message. As a matter of fact, several messages on this subject. What's God like? And I think that's something we never grow tired of. Asking is wanting to discover more and more of what God is like. Jesus said this is eternal life. That they may know me. That, may, that they may know the Father. And don't we hunger and thirst To know more of Him, and so this morning, I hope we get to do a little bit of that this morning as we open our Bibles and look at Psalm one thirty nine from the beginning. Can I do a disclaimer? I want you to know that some of the things I share this morning have not all originated from me. There's a very, very long list of of commentators and authors that I've consulted, scripture references that I has have done a cross reference on. By no means. Do we have room, either in my verbal this morning or in your uh, handout that I gave you this morning, to list all the different references of people that I owe some uh, respect to for helping us, helping me put together this message? But frankly, I want to tell you the resources that I've consulted. I can tell you that by and large, primarily, I have shied away. From the references that made Psalm 139 about us, about me, about you, about self, and so this morning I want us to look at Psalm 139 primarily about God. Let's be clear: Psalm 139 is about God, simply and wholly. A lot of me's, a lot of my's, a lot of eyes in this passage, which is and it should be encouraging to us. But Psalm 139 is primarily. And first, about God. Some have tried to make it about me or my. But however you cut it, the self-help emphasis, which is the religion of the world right now, and somewhat the religion even within certain churches and authors, it's failed. And it's failed because it's not about us, after all. It's only about us insofar as it is rooted in what He has done for us. That it is He that has chosen set His affections upon us. It was of His own doing. And that is where we draw our value from. That it was of His doing. Because from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Let me illustrate this for you as we get started. You should be able to see it on the overhead this morning. People come to the scriptures in one of two different ways. Some people come to the scripture verses looking for how it applies to them. Hmm. We want to know how the scripture verse applies to us. But others approach, and I think in the correct manner, they approach the Bible in reading, what does the Bible tell me about God? And then, once we find out what it tells us about God, then we can learn how it is that the Bible applies to us. So let's do this. Let's read just the first few verses of Psalm 139. As those who would approach it, with a self-orientation. It's about me. So verse number one, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is in my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me hear the emphasis there now let's let's read this i believe the way that david intended it for us to ingest this psalm o oh lord you have searched me and known me you know when i sit down and when i rise up you discern my thoughts from afar you search out my path and my lying down are acquainted with all my ways Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Two different ways we approach the scripture. And this is the way I think we should be approaching it that way this morning. A.W. Tozer made this statement. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Can I repeat that? And it's in your handout. What comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Because what comes into our minds as we think about God impacts all of our life, our decisions, our directions, everything about us. The correct posture as we approach the scriptures is as one exclaimed, don't tell me who I am until you've caused me to gaze in awe at the I am. Don't tell me who I am until you've caused me to gaze in awe at the I am. So church, let's gaze this morning at the I am. By the way, some scientific studies have been done that I've just recently read about where scientists has, science has looked at awe. And they created a a couple of scenarios where they took people and they stood them in front of large magnificent trees gorgeous trees and they would look up and it. right next to these beautiful wonderful trees they had a facade of a very tall building and they just told them to look and to gaze and then they created an accident to happen and the student walked near them and around where this had been set up And he tripped on purpose for the purpose of the experiment. And he was carrying with him pens and pencils. When people saw that, do you know that primarily the people who were gazing in awe were the ones that scrambled to help the student gather his pens together? And there was a less of a response from those who had not been in awe. Guys, we were made for awe. We were made to see God's awe, and to be dazzled by that. And when we do that, just as was illustrated in that accident simulation, when we do that, we turn, and we love neighbor as self. Love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we're in awe there, and then we naturally turn. We get outside of ourselves, outside of our self-focus, and we start to focus on others and love neighbors. As love neighbors, we love ourselves. I need to give you a little bit of background on this message as we get started because if you don't perceive this, you won't perceive this in the initial words of this psalm that I've read. But as the psalm progresses, you will. David was at a rough place in his life. What prompted him to write this? He was at a rough place. No surprise, right? I mean, we've heard David in rough places before. But it's needful for us to understand that there were real flesh and blood enemies against him. And that's what prompted the rewriting of the psalm. We're going to take a look at the psalm this morning and the way that David created this song. You know, when you come to song, when you come to songwriting, there's certain, there's certain laws that you have to incorporate. Like, you want people to stay in the same key. People don't need to be singing in different keys. You want them to sing on the same key. You want the rhythm to go at a certain pace or certain laws. And so as you look at the way that David constructed the psalm, there were certain... Precepts that he wanted us to see. And that's the way we're going to follow it this morning is the way that David wrote the psalm. So here's David's format. He did four paragraphs, six sentences each, and it falls in this format. This morning we're going to look at first God's omniscience. Secondly, we're going to look at God's omnipresence. Third, we're going to look at his omnipotence. And fourth, we're going to look at God's vengeance and David's zeal for God's honor. By the way, the word's prefix, omni, you won't find that in the scriptures. It's what theologians have done to group together a complete understanding or as complete as possible of grouping of what God is like, which is the very thing that we want to do this morning. So you won't find the words omni, but it does describe who and what he is like, which is, by the way, our eternal pursuit. So let's look at his omnipresence. First from verse number one. O Lord, you have searched me, and known me I am known to him and he does this without any effort on his part God is not going to find out anything new when he searches me he already knows me so intimately by the way the word used for search here is the same word that was used for when Joshua and Caleb and the children of Israel went out to search into Canaan and to do some research out there and to find out what it was like to spy on the land of Canaan. And they found things that they were unaware of. They heard that it was a fruitful ground. What they didn't expect was that they would find a single cluster of grapes, so huge that it would take two men to bring it back. They found a lot of dates. They found all kinds of fruitful things in that land. They found out things that they did not expect. That's not true. When God searches us, he's not surprised. He's not caught off guard when he looks inside of us. Verse 1 tells me I'm known to him. By the way, this word know is mentioned several times in the first few verses. Verse 1, verse 2, twice in verse number 6. So what's the message there? God's wanting us to know something. And he lets us know at the beginning of the psalm that there's something for us to know. Regarding his omniscience this past week, we had staff meeting. Jerry was out of town, so Ryan and I decided that we were going to have staff meeting over lunch. And I don't know if you've seen this, but this is a really great commercial that Arbys has put out in the last couple of weeks. <coughs> and they've got this steak prime-rib steak sandwich that is smothered in green peppers and bell peppers and grilled onions. It will make your mouth water. And I'm going, i got to have me one of those. (laughs) And I hope it tastes as good as they made it look on TV. So there was a number of places that we could have gone. Ryan and I could have gone to Fresh Kitchen. We could have gone to Harvey's. We could have gone to other places. But we decided that we would go to Arby's and give this sandwich a try. By the way, by the time we got there, they were out of the grilled onions and peppers and stuff like that. So that was a little bit of a disappointment. So we decided to go with something else. Here's my question for you. Did God know that Ryan and I were going to go to Arby's? Did God know that we would choose that over Harveys? Stand by for that answer. When the psalmist says he searched me, the Hebrew word implies intimately knows us. Nothing surprises him. And shortly we're going to find out that that kind of knowledge is just too wonderful for David. He said it's high. It's lofty. I can't attain to it. Some people want to distance themselves from even thinking that God knows everything about them. They want to pull the curtain closed. They want to wrap themselves in a dark room and block out thoughts of God. They're threatened by such knowledge. David, however, revels in it. I hope you can too. David is known, and he takes comfort in it. Remember, this is not David being far removed from the fray. He's got enemies, God's enemies that are against him. This is not David just out contemplating in his lawn chair, watching billowing clouds go by and having a glass of lemonade or in his case, goat's milk. He's in the fray. Enemies are against him. David is going to revel in the knowledge that God knows him, even in that situation. God discerns our thoughts from afar, verse 2 says. Every emotion, feeling, resolve, every doubt, every motive, every anxious moments, they're all exposed before God. Verse 2, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, You discern my thoughts from afar. Now, by the way, afar is not necessarily us thinking that he's in heaven and we're down here, and it's a far distance between us and him, so he discerns my my thoughts from afar. This is not a spatial reference. This has more to do with we, ourselves, don't even know what our thoughts are away off from now in the future. He discerns our thoughts afar. David said, verse 4, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, you know it all together. You ever had one of those moments? All of a sudden you just blurt something out of your mouth and you have no idea where it came from. And you wish you could buy it back. Not even before a word is on my tongue, behold, you know it all We may be surprised what comes out of our mouth. But God was not in the least surprised. In verse 5, David says that God has hemmed us in. And about being hemmed, hemmed in, I love what Charles Spurgeon says. He said, we cannot turn back so to escape him, for he is behind. We cannot go forward and outmarch him, for he is before. He not only beholds us, but he surrounds us. He hems us in. No have a question for you. Does that knowledge trouble you? For David, God's exhaustive and all encompassing knowledge is simply too wonderful for him. David, as do we, we lack the necessary faculties of our mind to fully grasp what is before him. David's head is exploding when he thinks about how God is multiple thoughts thinking about him. It's too deep, it's too high, too wide, too expansive. For his and your and my finite mind to comprehend. Such knowledge passes not only his comprehension, but his imagination as well. And do we not also, when we think of the New Testament passage that tells us that eye is not seen, ear is not heard, neither is entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them that love him? It's high. I can't attain to it, I can't fully grasp it. Thank God. That he's thinking of us in that manner. Again with Spurgeon. Concerning God's knowledge being high. And David's not able to attain it. Spurgeon says of necessity. This knowledge must be high. Because we are such poor limited beings. And when we stand tiptoe. We cannot even reach the lowest step. Of the throne of the eternal. It's high. I can't attain to it wonder of it all. I hope the God that you serve is greater than the knowledge that you personally possess. Otherwise, you'll be tempted to worship your understanding of your knowledge, and that's going to be hard when you get in times when they're dark. By the way, yes, to the answer you asked earlier. Did God know that Ryan and I would end up at Arby's this past Wednesday? He knows it. He knew it. By the way, he knows what's on the lunch menu for tomorrow as well. (laughs) David starts this psalm by saying, God knows me. When he sees me, he sees into me. And he sees through me. Nothing is ever hidden from God. Not only does God know me, but God is with me. So here we're going to start to talk about his omnipresence. His omnipresence describes God being everywhere, present now, immediately. He exists in all places at once. He is as much holy, present in San Francisco this morning as he is holy, present in Calcutta, India. He says in verse 7, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, boy, it sort of sounds like he's trying to elude God here, doesn't it? But he's not. If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. He's not trying to elude God. But David helps us answer the question, where shall I go? And so he uses this word picture. I love word pictures. Helps us grasp thoughts. And so he says in verse number 8, if I ascend, where is that? That's up. If they lower me into Sheol, the grave. If I take the wings of the morning, where, where does the sun come up? It comes up over in the east where the birds rise. If I take the wings of the morning. Remember, David is writing within Israel, and it's land orientation. The Mediterranean Sea is over to the west, and he says, If I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, for him it was the west. Even there your hand shall lead me. He gave us a compass, word pick. North, south, east, west, you're there. There's nowhere that I can go that you're not already there. Do you think there might be a place that God might not be? If so... Where? Point it out on a map. Name it. And even there, you're going to find God. Let's read verse number 11. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. So when it's looking bleak, when I most need to be led and I do not know which way to turn, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. No matter what the darkness, God is ever with us. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of deep darkness, even death, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. In the dark days of our life, and even in the days of our triumph, God always goes the distance with us, making a way where there is no way. God is with you. By the way, God's omnipresence... Yeah is a powerful incentive for our holiness. Considering the etiquette, the decorum, and protocols of the king's court, it would be unthinkable, Stephen Charnock says, for what man would do an unworthy action or speak an unhandsome word in the presence of his prince? Stephen Charnock wrote two wonderful books on the attributes of God. Thought it was fitting for us to use that quote from one of his books. Why did David keep God's testimonies? Because he considered that all his ways were before Him, before God, omnipresent. Again, God's omnipresence is a powerful incentive to our holiness, because we will, as the writer of Hebrews, tell us. In Hebrews 4.13, no creature is hidden from his sight, but we're all naked and exposed to the eyes of him with whom we must give account. The knowledge of his omnipresence is a powerful motivator for our holiness. Psalm 139 should increase our hallowed, trembling, and righteous fear of God, which is both a comfort and a guide. A powerful incentive Is God's omnipresence. Well, not only is God with us, but God made you and me uniquely. And here we start the doctrine of the omnipotence of God. Verse number 13, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. These are stunning words. They're majestic words. They're concepts that rightfully are beyond our ability to imagine what God did when he was forming us. And i got to tell you, this, this passage is worthy of our continued exploration. However, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time this morning on this specific part of the packet, pass, passage because it's been magnificently covered by other insightful and very well-skilled expositors. And because we ourselves have often taken repeated trips over and over again into these verses ourselves as we have contemplated them. However, what I will take time to do in this passage is to invite you to join us for prayer for the unborn this afternoon from 1 o'clock to 4 o'clock this afternoon. This is a peaceful gathering where we're just going to pray for those who are still in their mother's womb, those that are yet unborn, and we're going to meet from 1 to 4 at the health center the all women's health center on Central Avenue by the way concerning his omnipotence his all powerfulness is there anything that God cannot do I a first year undergrad at a community college several years ago the professor was sick so the president of the college stepped in and it seemed as if they had the first thing out of his mouth, he had intended to dismantle our belief in God's omnipotence, of God being all-powerful. So he opens up with this question. He goes, can God make a rock so big? If God is all-powerful, can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? How many of you have heard that before? That's right? You're right, Pete. It is foolishness. You know why it's foolishness? Because any material thing is finite there's no such thing as an infinite material thing you can't have two infinites come together unless you put Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together that's the only place it'll work but you can't have two infinites that God could have a conflict within himself and he doesn't he is all powerful but I will tell you some things that this all powerful God that we serve cannot do he cannot, he cannot act contrary to his own nature. For example, God cannot lie. He cannot deny himself or his promises. He cannot sin. And because he's just, he cannot merely overlook sin because Christ was the one who paid the penalty for sin. can't do that to his son. In his omnipotence, God, is unparalleled. There's no one like him. David continues to revel in God's omnipotence, starting in verse 17. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. All right, now get this. You gather together your kids after church, and go to, hey, we're going to go to St. Pete Beach. And we're going to build a sandcastle while we're out at St. Pete Beach. There's only one thing I want us to do first. We need to count the number of grains of sand that are in the sand bucket. How do you think that's going to go over? What time do you think you'll get home? (laughs) Guarantee you're going to miss supper that night. In essence, David says, don't even try it. Don't even start to think about it counting the sands of the sea. And the way he does that, uh, such a foolish, hearty attempt it would be. So he uses the incalculable word, if, if I could count the thoughts towards me, they are more than the sands of the sea. His omnipotence is displayed and sustained in his intimate involvement in our lives, which we rarely think about. Remember the story Jesus told about two sparrows? They're worth a penny. And not one of them can fall to the ground without the knowledge of our Father, His intimate thoughts of us. By the way, do you know how many birds fall from the air every day in America? 13.7 million birds. And not one of them falls without His knowledge. God has such an intimate involvement with everything that happens in your life. even keeps an accurate record even of the numbers of the head hairs of your head in some cases (laughs) the lack thereof (laughs) this is impressive but there's something even more significant that you cannot miss when you read that passage Jesus identifies this sovereign one this omnipotent one as your father that demolishes any distant, cold, impersonal view of God's sovereignty, his omnipotence. Instead, he rules with the wisdom and protective care of a father for his children with love and grace in his heart, the all-powerful one who knows you. And not only did he form you in the secret place, he also formed your days when, you, when there was not yet one of them. He ordains your life. And as the psalmist says, he hems you in behind and before. What a mighty God we serve. What a mighty, omnipotent, all-powerful God we serve. There's none like him. How can we not be jealous for his uncomparable, unspeakable glory? And this is what David does in verse 19. And it brings us to the last and final movement of this song. It's not unusual that in, in, in songs, and you go to concerts, they can have different movements within a song. And this is what David is doing. He's moving to the final movement in this psalm. And it brings us to the movement that we've titled God's Vengeance and David's Zeal for God's Glory. There's a transition going on in here. For the first time in this psalm, David asked. Heretofore, he's proclaimed the glory of the Lord, but now he asks. And what does he ask? He asks that God would be glorified. But he does it in unusual, strange language that we're somewhat unfamiliar with. So let's read. Verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Oh, men of blood, depart from me. Oh, transition. I mean, we're talking about how God has numbered our, our, our days. That he knows us, that he knows us well. And then all of a sudden, where does this come from? Oh God, that you would slay the wicked. You know, these are ordained words of God. Sometimes when we first initially look at them, we go, wow, what's David doing? What's he blowing? He's blowing it here. Hang with me just a few more moments. What's David doing? Don't miss this. David is praying God's word back to himself. This is not David saying something contradictory. Initially, it seems like a hard saying until we remember that the backdrop of this passage is David has real flesh and blood enemies against him. But they're enemies against God first. And David calls these men men of blood. They've done ruthless, vile, wicked things. And there seems to be no end to their lawlessness. So how, is David God, so how is David praying God's word back? Here's how. God has testified from Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So David is praying God's word back to God. This is not an expression of personal vengeance. I love what Sam Storm says about passages such as these. They are not emotionally uncontrolled outbursts, but rather they're the product of reasoned meditation. Prayers of these types, and there are handfuls of them that you'll find in the Psalms. They are calculated petitions, not spontaneous explosions of a bad temper. David's passion was for the triumph of divine justice not this personal satisfaction of personal malice. These laments and other laments like them in the Psalms are expressions of the horror of sin. The motivation behind these prayers like this is zeal for God's righteousness, His honor, His reputation, and the triumph of God's kingdom. And it's important to note that these types of prayers are rarely, if ever, for the destruction of a specific person. They're mostly against a class or a group of people. Namely, the wicked are those who oppose God. David is he's not so much preoccupied with what the wicked do to him, but what they do to God. Look at verse number 20. They speak against you with malice intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. This is zeal for God's honor. There's a oneness expressed there. Have you ever had somebody say something? Or do something against a child of yours. And you want to rescue them from the pain. David is one with God here. Your enemies are my enemies. It's ultimately against God, but David takes it personally. He cries out to God to avenge himself in order to stop the violence against God and his people. So here's a question for you. I'm going to wrap up as we answer this question. This side of the cross, what is our response to the wicked and haters of God that do violence against God? There's a twofold response. First is prayer. And believe me, this is not passive. It's in your handout. I want to quote from it. James. Adams, he's the author of a book, I love the title of this book, it's called War Psalms of the Prince of Peace. That's one for you, isn't it? So find some war psalms within within the psalms. Adams wrote, Have you stopped to consider that when we pray, thy kingdom come, that this is to invoke divine judgment on all other kingdoms, and all those who oppose the reign of God? When we pray as Jesus taught us, we cry out to God for his blessings upon his church and for his curses upon the kingdom of the evil one. So what is our response to the literal atrocities and the hatred of man? What is our posture? Should our posture not be as David's? And watch what David says back again to verse number 19. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Ah, there it is. You slay the wicked. It's not David taking vengeance. If only God you would do it. He leaves the doing of vengeance to God. It's not passive. Our second response is an action response. Where you have opportunity and if you see something going awry, and you have the opportunity to do good and do not do it. It is sin. James chapter 4 and verse 17. So many times where we can, where you see injustice being done, we should do justice. That's the second way that we respond. He's shown you, oh man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. I'd like to Invite the worship team to join me, those that will be serving communion this morning to come. As we're wrapping this up, I want to encourage you, don't don't be distracted by the movement that's happening while these guys are getting in place. Because we're approaching the finale to this song. In response to the wicked things done around him, David knows that he himself needs spiritual protection lest he hate God's enemies for personal reasons. He recognizes his own vulnerability when he says, get them, God, or slay the wicked. He recognizes his own vulnerability. That's why he concludes this psalm, Psalm 139, with the prayer that God would purify his motives and protect his heart. So what I'd like for us to do this morning is we read the last two verses from this psalm. I'd like to read these verses as a responsive reading. They should be behind me shortly. Search me, O God, and know my heart. and all together and see if there's any grievous way in me and lean me in the way everlasting. Church, let's pray that we love the things that God loves and hate the things that he hates. Been my prayer for decades. Lord, help me love the things that you love. Hate the things that you hate. As we celebrate the Lord's table this morning, let's do business with God right now. And I want us to remember the decorum of the king's court that we spoke of earlier. David doesn't want anything between he and God. And so he asked God to search him. So I'm going to ask you this morning, a little different this morning. As you're sitting in your chair and continuing to worship God, Would you take some time to ask God to search your heart? We've created a space of time for this. Ask God to search your hearts and to lead you in the way everlasting. I imagine the Spirit of God is going to trigger some things in you, things that you need to cease doing and other things that you need to begin to do. Let's make this a time when we do do business with God. Ask him to bring to mind, to your mind, things that he already knows. Here's a strange thing. David says in verse 1, number 1, You have searched me, O God. And now he's asking God at the bottom of the song. Search me, O God. He's recognized that God has already searched him and knows everything. Where is a place that I can go that you're not already there? This is for us. We're asking God to search our hearts for him to bring to light things in us that aren't like him. And then ask him to change our heart. As you're doing that now, I want to encourage you that when you're ready to come forward, rather than forming lines to come forward this morning, nothing wrong with that, but we want to do some transact, some business with God now. When you're ready, come forward. We served the bread and the juice. And do we take that bread and juice back with you to your seats? Take the Lord's Supper and continue to worship in just a few minutes. Ryan will come up and close this morning and give us our benediction and dismiss us. On the same night that the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread And after he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. In the same manner also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let a person examine himself then. And so he did the bread and drink of the cup. Would you examine and rejoice? Would you examine, repent, and rejoice? That could be repent for something you have done or something that you need to do.